Good evening, and welcome to February 2 Groundhog Day, the beginning of the new year in Asian cultures. As you know, it cycles with moon, the moon. We're in, our liturgical calendar is based on the movements of the earth. I find this very, very touching. I'd like to dedicate this talk as last week to Thich Nhat Hanh, and I will bring forward some of his teaching and see if we can weave it into our modern practice. <laughs> he was, as you know, a truly masterful modern Buddhist teacher, and that's not all he was. He, uh, he incorporated social justice work and all of that advocacy into his teaching as a Buddhist teacher is probably a better way to say it. And I came across the way he um, expressed the precepts. So I would like to share those with you at the beginning here and um, weave it together. The way he taught his um, lay and monastic practitioners. He didn't call these precepts. He called them trainings. I think there's something very profound about that. Trainings. These are not guidelines imposed from anyone outside their trainings. And as we recite them in the full moon ceremony, as is our tradition, the first one, a disciple of Buddha does not take life. Thich Nhat Hanh's phrasing of this, the first mindfulness training is to protect life. And then he goes on to express how exactly that happens. Listen, the first mindfulness training is to protect life, to decrease violence in oneself in the family and in society. This is how we protect life, he expresses. The way we phrase the second precept is to not take what is not given. He expresses it as the second training to practice social justice, generosity, not stealing, and not exploiting other living beings. I think there's an appropriate time to be hearing, do not, do not, do not. I, there are times in my life when I need to hear, stop it, <laughs> just knock it off. But this way of he ha that he has of phrasing them, uh, do this, practice social justice, generosity, not exploiting. Okay, so the third one, a disciple of Buddha does not misuse sexuality. He expresses this practice as responsible sexual behavior in order to protect individuals, couples, families, and children. And in, in my view, 
not really to um, correct or adjust Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, but to expand it, to be able to say, I feel it as trustworthy in all intimate relationships, not just sexuality, but all intimate relationships. And then, of course, expand that to trustworthy in all relationship <laughs> at the individual family group and societal levels. We speak the fourth one as a disciple of Buddha does not lie. Thich Nhat Hanh expresses this as the practice of deep listening and loving speech. And he expresses the loving speech part as restoring communication and reconciling when necessary. This expression of including deep listening as part of our practice of speech is essential. The fifth one, as you know, a disciple of Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others. And Thich Nhat Hanh expresses this as mindful consumption to help us not bring toxins and poisons into our body or mind. Mindful consumption can make uh, reference to almost anything, not just uh, so-called intoxicants or might mind-altering substances. It could be about food. It could be about Netflix. It could be about exercise. It can even be about studying the Dharma, overindulging and studying the Dharma. <laughs> it can be toxifying, actually. What, what part of my life I have ignored by indulging in this other thing? Thich Nhat Hanh expresses these as mindfulness trainings and that they are based on the precepts that were developed during the time of the Buddha. And he says that they were developed specifically for the lay community. He said, I have translated these precepts for modern times because mindfulness is the foundation for all of them. With mindfulness, we are aware of what's going on in our bodies our feelings, our minds, and the world. We avoid doing harm to ourselves and to others. So, of course, you know he was talking about mindfulness in the context of the Eightfold Path. So, we can't uh, ignore the other seven facets of the Eightfold Path, of course. Mindfulness and concentration, as he's describing them, are two of the eight. We could say that mindfulness and concentration help us to cultivate right view. Based on right view, right thought arises. And based on right thought, right speech arises. We could also say right action, of course, arises on right thought. So this mindfulness <laughs> allows us to refrain from one thing while cultivating another. And, you know, what we're doing is refraining from reactive habitual behavior and cultivating attentive and holistic behavior.
In temple practices, one of the ways we have to cultivate mindfulness uh, in the context of our community is by respecting our rituals, our heritage. And you know, the bells and the robes and the bowing can seem to be quite exotic. And I want to encourage us, us to not um, colonize these, basically, but rather to say, oh, this is our heritage, and this body does this this way. So mindfulness in our temple practices is a way of respecting our heritage. And generally, in the Zendo, the actual Zendo and the Zoom Zendo, people bring a great deal of attention to this task. In temple roles themselves, the task is actually quite simple. <clears throat> Bell ringing, for example, following the movements of the priest and following the movements of the room. And I myself have done this more than once. It's like, okay, I have this one task, and this one task is to ring the big bell nine times. That's not hard. But then partway through, I'm like, oh, wait, was that six or seven? I've lost track, right? And attention now to my mind. <laughs> it seems so simple, but as uh, Pema Chodron has written, how you do anything is how you do everything. Can I bring that level of mindful attention and concentration to every aspect of our lives? Observing the body-mind in this super simple context of ringing the bell or just bowing allows us to also be able to see it in more complex situations, like when we're busy out in the world making a living or when we're driving or interacting with people in a more complex way. We have a teaching that we repeat often. It's called the merging of difference and unity. And this one line always strikes me. The way we recite it or chant it is, re is this way. If you don't understand the path as it meets your eyes, how can you know the way as you walk? Really, there are so many times in our lives where um, I see just what I expected to see, or I see just what I wanted to see, and I'm not actually seeing what's fully there. I'm only seeing what was expected in this way. If you don't understand the path as it meets your eyes, how can you know the way as you walk? So this is an encouragement to open our eyes and see reality as it is. A different, a slightly different translation of that same thing. If you do not see the way, you do not see it even as you walk on it. And then when you walk the way, you draw no nearer progress no farther. The way we chant that is, progress is not a matter of far or near. How exactly would we talk about progress if we're talking about difference and unity merging? 
if we're talking about the relative and absolute being one and the same thing, Suzuki Roshi gives us a hint. And now I'm bringing up the Branching Streams Flow in the Darkness by Suzuki Roshi, and that very part, progress is not a matter of far or near. Suzuki Roshi says it this way, when you are involved in selfish practice, you have some idea of attainment. When you strive to reach a goal or attain, you naturally have the idea, I am far from the goal. Or you might say, I am almost there. <laughs> but if you really practice our way, enlightenment is right where you are. And Suzuki now is going on to express what Dogen said about this, that in self-centered practice, there is enlightenment and there is practice. Dogen calls them as two separate things, practice and enlightenment, if one is involved in self-centered practice. And therefore, practice as its thing and enlightenment as its thing are events separate that we would encounter in life. And now Suzuki Roshi explaining what Dogen actually meant by practice enlightenment as a hyphenated thing. When we realize practice and enlightenment as events that appear in the realm of the great Dharma world, then enlightenment is an event that expresses the Dharma world and practice also is an event that expresses the Dharma world. This is, this is the, um, the eye of practice. If we can open the eye of practice, we see that if enlightenment is important, then practice is also important. And as Thich Nhat Hanh spoke it, uh, Peace is every step. Suzuki Roshi echoed the same thing, saying, when we understand this point, within each step, we have enlightenment, and there's no need to be excited about it. <laughs> A little bit later in that same essay, Suzuki Roshi says, if you do things that need to be done, Regardless of whether the results are good or bad, successful or unsuccessful, that is real practice. If you do things not because of Buddha, or for others, or for yourself, but for doing the things themselves, that is the true way. Catherine once recounted a time when... Um, she had been the attendant, we call it Jisha, the attendant to Suzuki Roshi, and was preparing to light a stick of incense. So she lit a candle and um, put down the matchbook. And Suzuki Roshi stopped her partway through that process and closed the matchbook cover and said, this is doing one thing completely. Catherine relayed that as an example of, right, not for merit, not for good, not for bad, 
only to do this one thing completely. So we have what I would call the triple treasure, and we know it as Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. We could think of this as our experience in zazen, in meditation, is cultivating our Buddha awareness, mindfulness and concentration. The Dharma, of course, is study, and this event tonight is an example of study or when we read and discuss together in informal ways. This also is study. This is the Dharma. And Sangha, the third facet of the Triple Treasure, community, work practice, and actually play practice, <laughs> playing around. <clears throat> Many of you have been to Tassajara and you probably met Leslie who is a lay transmitted teacher. When I was there many, many years ago now, um, living for a practice period, commented partway through to Leslie, this is a brilliant model you've got going on here. And, you know, everybody's got a job. You know, there are people in the kitchen, there are people on the grounds, there are people tending to the garden, there are people in the shop, there are people who have learned the bells and the routine of the zendo, there are people who are attending to the teachers, everybody's got a job. And I said, this is a brilliant model because everyone is included, no one is left out. Even the newest arrivals are included. And she looked at me in, in the way just Leslie can and said, no, this is not brilliant. It's necessary. This also was a teaching to me. In order to be able to do our temple practice, everyone is included. No one left out. And there are jobs for everyone to participate. At... Um, at practice period, the schedule is quite full. <clears throat> Many hours of zazen in any given day, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. <laughs> uh, Dharma study, which includes sewing time, for example, and Sangha time, working together. And then there are days off that are not really days off, like completely loose, because there's still a zazen schedule and there is still work to be done but a slightly more relaxed schedule. And on days off, people take hikes together, play Scrabble, play cards, you know, play. This also is part of community life, getting to know each other in informal ways, cultivating and maintaining our communication in wholesome ways, deep listening and harmonious speech. So, we learn by doing, we learn by modeling after someone who has shown us how to do a task. And in the West, as in our practice, we're not trying to emulate monastic practice, and yet there is clear benefit to including zazen and study and work and free time in our schedule.
my thoughts have diverged about here uh, exactly what I should be highlighting today. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people ask me about priest practice or what about these precepts that we have taken either formally or informally? <clears throat> what is what is a teacher? What are we doing? How shall I model this bell ringing business, for example? The truth is that I barely know for me. How could I know for you? But I know that Part of our cultivation of practice together is this zazen and study and work and play. <laughs> Sometimes uh, I feel I get it right, but most of the time I don't. And then what we are kind of obliged to do now that we have taken up this way, we say every morning, all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. So, This is owning the conditions in which each one of us has grown up. The family influences our personal preferences, societal and cultural influences. All of my ancient twisted karma, and it truly is beginningless. And I enact it through my body, through my speech, and through my mind. Then the last line is the Buddha's line. I now fully avow. Given that this is the karmic thread and this is the set of conditions, given this, I now avow. What am I vowing? I'm vowing to return to cultivating right view right mindfulness, right concentration, right thought, right speech. This is the vow. A couple of weeks ago, I offered a talk here um, in our, our normal Wednesday, and I highlighted some of the wood and the various projects at the Zendo that, have, uh, that go into cultivating our practice. And that was, of course, on the heels of a, our priest ordination that happened not too long ago, during which the novice priests receive lineage papers and ancestor documents. And I've just been continually struck during this entire month, people throughout time, people who have again and again made these great efforts for the benefit of a Dharma companion. And each one of the efforts that has been occurring for your benefit. Maintaining the Soto Zen tradition. These innumerable labors, we say as part of the meal chant, innumerable labors have brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. We could say innumerable labors have brought us this Zendo we should know how it comes to us. Innumerable labors have brought us this fiduciary role of the board. We should know how it comes to us. Innumerable labors have brought us the maple tree in the garden. We should know how it comes to us. 
So all of these practitioners over all of these years have been practicing for your benefit. And you will probably turn and practice for another. In the company of Dharma friends, it is partly our task to try out new behavior. I now fully avow, I'm going to avow to override my habitual or uh, cultivate the new. Try out something new and see what happens. <clears throat> if I'm typically shy, try being bold. If I'm typically non-judgmental, you can find something to be critical about. Observe the results. Reflect, adjust. This is part of I now fully avow. If I have been verbally aggressive, why would I be surprised that people are defensive around me? Observe it, see the results, and then adjust the behavior. There's a book that we often make reference to in uh, studying the precepts, and it's called Being Upright. The author is the teacher, Reb Anderson. And uh, in that book, the chapter of not speaking of others' faults, we say it as a disciple of Buddha does not slander, but does not speak of others' faults. Reb says, Bodhisattvas maintain a dialogue with all things, animate and inanimate, silently or spoken. At every turn they employ speech to discover and affirm the interdependence of all things. This interdependence we know to be uh, an aspect of right view. So, Many times over this past month, uh, people have been speaking with me about wishing to connect. You know, we've been in this isolated cycle for now almost two years. So wishing to connect. And... Um, You know, I'm thinking often about the precepts in part because we've got a lot of people sewing right now. And what does it mean to take the precepts formally? In the formal precept ceremony, Catherine used to say, ultimately, there is one precept, be Buddha. And she expressed it as, we divide that into 16 in order to recognize that it applies to every aspect of our life. And Dogen expressed it as, study the self, then forget the self. This, he went on to explain what forgetting the self means. He expresses it as merging with the myriad things. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like discovering and affirming the interdependence of all things. Teacher after teacher after teacher telling us the same. Merge with the myriad things. 
when merging with myriad things, body and mind of self and other drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. There we are, back to Catherine's. Be Buddha. The no trace continues endlessly. You know, there is no separate self, and yet we behave as if there is separate self. So how do we have the strength to maintain community practice? How do we have the strength to continue to return to vow? And partly, that strength is cultivated in the mindfulness and concentration practices, I believe. Partly, that strength is cultivated even in our simple bow. You know, when we put our palms together in bow, we're saying um, non-verbally, wisdom in one hand and compassion in the other hand. Wisdom and compassion meet. What is that wisdom? <clears throat> of course, the acknowledgement of interdependence. What is that compassion? Of course, the acknowledgement of our conditioned existence. Wisdom and compassion meet every time we bow. I have a proposal for us, and I'm, uh, I would like to hear your feedback about it. I'm on the verge of wanting to enact it, but I want to hear what you think. The proposal is this, that usually in practice discussion, people meet with a teacher one-on-one. -on -one. And there, it's important to be able to do that, because sometimes the relationship is such that we are found to be trustworthy listeners. <laughs> um, and it's important to be able to speak something all the way through in a completely trusted environment. So I recognize the importance of speaking one-on-one -on -one with a teacher. My proposal is this. I'm thinking about offering a schedule a couple weeks out of every month in which practice discussion would be offered, but not just one person at a time, in small clusters of two or three with a teacher. To have serious practice discussion with each other in an informal way, perhaps on a theme and this would require being trustworthy with each other. Partly, I'm interested in doing this to satisfy this request that I'm hearing. We need ways to connect. We need ways to be able to interact less formally. And partly, I want to do this so that we can kind of remove what might be perceived as a hierarchy of teacher, student, and more. Let's be resources to each other. You're all mature in your practice. How can you be a resource to another? Anyway, I think it's time to open up some conversation. Please feel free to give me some feedback about that idea, either now or via email or when you see me. If you have at this time memories to share about times when you heard Thich Nhat Hanh offer his teachings, I would welcome that as well. We can move into our recitation of the vows and then some announcements and 
I know that some people will have to leave. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it.